Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review. With midterms right around the corner, we are all about elections. The country is deeply divided over politics, and the control of the House and the Senate can be key to any president's agenda, which will be determined this November 8th, 2022. Who will come out on top? Let's find out in today's episode. Today's episode will be in two parts. First, a discussion on the midterms coming up this November 2022. I'll talk with Caroline Carlson, Senior Data Science Analyst at Dynata and Analyst for Decision Desk HQ, and Ryan Enos, Professor of Government at Harvard University and the Director of the Center for American Political Studies. Next, I, along with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shally Meng, will take a look at what this year could mean for elections in 2024, with two authors from our special theme on elections, Scott Tranter, founder of Optimus Analytics and Decision Desk HQ, and Professor Alan Lichtman, Distinguished Professor of History at American University. But let's start with this 2022, just around the corner, with Ryan and Caroline. I want to start with the most obvious question, what's on everyone's minds right now, what's in the news, who's going to win the midterms, the Democrats or the Republicans for the House or Senate? What do you think is going to happen? Well, look, the obvious bet is that the Republicans are going to win. And the question is, how much are they going to win by and whether they'll take one or both houses? And I think the the smart money is on the Republicans winning the House. And, and given how um, divided our politics are now, that probably it doesn't matter how much they win by, they'll keep their party in line and we'll have Republican control of the House moving forward. The Senate is a little more, I think the Senate's a little more of a crapshoot. And um, the smart money might still be on the Republicans, but not by very much. I think issues of candidate quality and other things are really making that maybe more of a toss-up than we would expect otherwise. And so I would not be shocked if we see a split Congress after this election with Democrats holding a narrow lead in the Senate and Republicans taking control of the House. What are the what are the main states you see as the potential toss up when you talk about candidate, you know, sort of quality and stuff? What are the main states that you see as the potential toss ups for the Senate? Well, you really got to point to Georgia, which, of course, naturally, for looking at history, we would expect to be a Republican state. And we saw that change in 2020 um, because of maybe issues of candidate quality, but also, of course, just the drag, perhaps, of um, that Trump was putting on that, especially in the special election context. And, you know, the, the Republican candidate there has quality issues, and um, however we might define those. And, you know, he's running against a pretty well-liked Democrat. So even in a Republican year with the candidate there, I think we could see um, Democrats hold that seat. And Pennsylvania is more of a traditional toss-up state, but Democrat Republicans have an edge, just like they do everywhere in the country there. And they have a really bad candidate, to be blunt. I mean, he doesn't even live in the state. And I think they've sort of sacrificed that state in a way they wouldn't otherwise have had to do. Now, there's other places, like I thought Ohio would have been an issue of candidate quality too, but that just could be my own bias coming through because um, J.D. Vance seems to have, you know, held that state pretty well. And, and Republicans will probably will probably hold on to that state in a way that they maybe won't be able to in Georgia. Caroline? Yeah, I definitely am leaning more towards split Congress, um, Republicans taking the House and Democrats maintaining the Senate. I mean, I'd say I'm more confident with this House projection just because a lot of these tipping point districts have a Republican partisan lean. And we are also dealing with, you know, congressional redistricting that tends to have a Republican bias. 
And as Ryan said, I'm really looking at Georgia. I think that's such an interesting situation because you do have this Democratic incumbent who has recently been doing a bit better in the polls. Um, So on election day, if we do see Georgia um, heading towards the Republican direction, then I would be very concerned for Democrats. I think that would be kind of like the, the signal. To throw a wrench into this that says it could potentially not be a split Congress in a sense, but actually both be democratically controlled. What if, you know, as we've seen, the margin by which the Republicans are are projected to win the House has decreased over time. You know, since I know the DDHQ models in July had it up at like 239 seats for Republicans. Now it's down to like 229 seats for Republicans. Is it possible that it ends up at like 223 seats for the Republicans and everybody, you know, you have a problem with the Freedom Caucus and, you know, you basically have the Joe Manchins of the Republican Party splitting the vote. And all of a sudden you basically have two democratically controlled houses. So the question would be that it is in practice you'll end up with split houses because of... It's possible, of course. You know, the um, Republicans have unruly members, just like like the Democrats do, if you want to think about it that way, unruly from the perspective of the leadership. I, I think, though, and this reflects a comment I made at the very beginning, is that I, I think, you know, the parties are pretty divided right now. And, and in the end, Republicans might not be able to get everything they want with the control of the House. And we can see this in the consistency of the way members vote that ultimately they're going to fall in line with the leadership on most most issues. And this might throw a wrench in there once in a while, but I think in effect, Republican control of the House means they'll be able to do a lot of things they want to do, even if they only control one House in terms of things like obstructing the agenda of President Biden and the Democrats. Their members will probably be in line and agree with that enough that that control will be meaningful for them. Yeah, I definitely... I definitely would would agree with that. Um, even if there's kind of a slight margin in favor of Republicans in the House, um, at the end of the day, I think that majority is going to um, enable them to have some power, especially not just when it comes to introducing legislation, but definitely blocking it. Um, so in the coming years, if we do see a Republican majority in the House, that's really going to shape the last two years of the first term of Joe Biden. And I think that can kind of impact public opinion And ultimately, even though it's far from now, what we would see in 2024. You now have both said what what you think is probably going to happen and maybe not what you'd bet a lot of money on, but you'd bet maybe a little bit of money on. So what is it that goes into these predictions? You know, what variables tend to matter? Is it how much money the candidates raised? Is it the polling that you've seen ahead of time? What are the variables that make this prediction of who's going to take the House or the Senate? So there's, of course any number of things you can put in. But if you're if you're looking at things that historically have the most predictive power, and that's what we think about when we forecast, is we think about historically what has had predictive power, you're usually going to look at perhaps three variables. And, and those would be presidential approval, generic ballot for, for the Congress, and the state of economy using one or more ways to indicate that, perhaps something like the change in the RDI. And in this case, at least two out of three of those line up squarely against the Democrats. Biden is very unpopular, various economic indicators. And we could talk about the state of the economy. It's perhaps more complicated than we might think in some circumstances. But nevertheless, various economic indicators point against the Democrats. And both of those would lead us to believe that Democrats are doing poorly. Now, 
The strange thing, perhaps, in this election, and why it's maybe a little unpredictable, is that the generic ballot is not tracking with presidential approval in the way that it historically has. So that's a little unusual. And Democrats are doing you know, maybe even a little better than Republicans in the generic ballot. It depends on what average you look at, but they're at least pretty even. It's maybe a dead heat. And so in some ways, it depends on which one of those classic indicators you might favor to decide who you think is going to win the House or the Senate. Caroline, do you have more indicators that you look at or are those, you know, the classic indicators sort of your your general look? Yeah, a lot of our forecasts include some of those classic indicators. So we have economic indicators, ballot choice, as well as previous polling. I would also say we throw in um, candidate traits in there as well as characteristics of the district and the race. So is this an open seat? Is it an incumbent that's running again? And what is the political history or partisan lean of that state or district, which is what we'd say are, are some of the fundamentals. But to go a bit further on that, sometimes when I think about this, it's not just what are the variables that matter in a forecast? Sometimes it's what are the variables that we know do not matter? And we've seen some polling data that people have relied on recently or some commentators have relied on recently, and they've used them as proxies for vote choice, right? So one big figure, I think recently Gallup came out with a poll showing that there was a huge margin in favor of voters uh, preferring Republicans when it comes to handling the economy. So voters were much more likely to say, I trust Republicans to handle and fix the economy than Democrats. But I think we need to hesitate with some of these survey questions because that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see a huge margin uh, when it comes to this election. It's contextual information, and I think it's really interesting, as well as the the presidential approval uh, point, which, which is more important. But I will say I think we need to hesitate when we apply some of this stuff. Sometimes I do like going back to the basics and saying, what's the ballot choice? When we ask people, are you going to vote for the Republican or Democrat in the upcoming race? Who do you pick? So sometimes going back to the basics is really important here. I think that's an interesting question of, you know, what what sort of can get really confused in terms of we think it means one thing and it doesn't mean actually mean that. You know, for example, data has shown in the past that the midterms tend to go the opposite way of whatever the previous presidential race was, you know, people voting against the president. Do you all see that as a big indicator? Um, or do you think there's too many times that hasn't worked that it, it isn't a good indicator of what the presidential race was the year, the two years before. Well, it usually works. So if you knew nothing else, then you know that's a pretty good bet. So in the post-war era, it's only been a couple of times that this didn't happen, and and those might have been unusual times. You know, one was was post nine eleven, and um, just the incredible feelings that were in the country at that time that translated into Republican support because Bush was the incumbent. And we're not in that world, obviously. Um, the other one, maybe, which has maybe more of a lesson, was um, 1998 during the Clinton impeachment. And that seemed to be something more where voters were reacting to what was going on in Washington. They just didn't like it. And they seemed to be actually punishing Republicans for their behavior and rewarded the incumbent president's party. I'm not sure we're in either one of those worlds. You know, um, Clinton was rewarded with a very, because he had a, he was running on a strong economy, and the other party was trying to impeach him during that strong economy. And one way to interpret that is voters were saying, hey, what we really care about is the economy. And we're not in that world. You know, um, even if people sort of don't like some of the things they're seeing out of the Republican Party, 
they might be able to, willing to swallow a lot of that given some of the sort of general dissatisfaction with the mood and such. So I think, you know, we're very much in line with the historical precedent that the president's party is just going to lose out in a midterm. And if you knew nothing else, that's what you'd bet on. And I think we're kind of in, in that world still. Interesting. So with the midterms being so sort of predicted by the previous presidential election, you know, as you said, Ryan, if you if you knew nothing else, that would be a pretty good indicator. How much so does then what's going to happen on November 8th affect the 2024 presidential election or the, you know, the, the elections that are going to be happening in 2024? Is it is it as good of a predictor, are the midterms as good of a predictor of what happens in the next presidential election as the previous presidential election is of the midterms? I think in general, the midterms won't be able to tell us much about the presidential race, especially when we think about two years. Um, we can't really control what the political climate is going to look like or what sort of salient issues are going to be on the agenda. And I feel like in politics, two years is like a lifetime. <laughs> so so it's hard to predict what's, what's going to even happen in the political environment. But yeah, I think the main thing that comes to mind is simply that the outcome of this election is going to impact President Biden's ability to get his agenda passed. Um, it's going to impact how the public views Biden uh, and his ability to get work done, given that there may be a lot of stalemate in Congress. So I don't think there's going to be a direct impact, but I think you can make the argument that there may be an indirect impact in the sense that whoever wins Congress is really going to set up the framework for what happens within the next two years and ultimately public opinion, perhaps approval rating and maybe we can see an indirect impact on 2024. So given this concept that, you know, two years in politics is a lifetime, and let me make sure I phrase this correctly. If we pretend we're back in 2014 and 2016 presidential election is coming up, at this point in time, Trump hadn't even announced for president. So if I'd said to you, you know, what do you think about Donald Trump as president in 2016? You'd go, what are you even talking? You know, you'd say, what are you even talking about? That's crazy. So given that fact that two years is a lifetime and that we are more than two years out from the presidential election of 2024, so I will not hold either one of you to these predictions, if you had to make your best guess about who's going to be on the ballot for the Democrats and the Republicans, who would you guess? <laughs> Do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, Liberty said she wouldn't hold me to this, so I'm uh, I won't. Okay. I promise. I think we'll see Biden again for Democrats. I'll, I'll say that, and and I and I know there's some rumbling of him not doing it, but again, just a historical precedent of a uh, president not running for re-election is you know practically zero. He is very old, and there's legitimate concerns about that. If he chooses to run, and my guess is he will, for the same reasons he ran in 2020, was that he seemed like the right person at that moment. In many ways, he was. He was a person that was sort of uniquely uniting for Democrats and could pull back some voters they needed to, to win. I, I think that he'll hear that message that we really need you on the ballot, because it's just hard for me to see another Democrat having the same popular appeal Biden does. Um, it's not his vice president. It's not somebody like Gavin Newsom that people are pointing to out in California. 
maybe for them in 2028, but I think Biden will hear that message from people and I think he'll run. And then we will have even a more extraordinarily elderly president and we'll think about that. But the Republicans are, are harder to think about, right? I mean, you talk about prediction. I mean, we have to deal with predictions of indictments and predictions of popularity and predictions of all kinds of other things to think about who's going to be the Republican nominee. It's just hard to know. I think the most likely candidate is still Donald Trump. He is the most popular person among the Republican voters are going to vote in primaries, and we know that. And he wasn't the most popular person among Republicans when the election started uh, in 2016, but he was among the people that voted in primaries, and that's what got him the nomination and ultimately got him the presidency. And so he knows that. And if he's able to run, um, and I think these legal issues are perhaps important, but if he's able to run, I think he'll get the nomination. But I don't think it would be impossible for us to see somebody like Ron DeSantis make a run and, and get elected. I, I think that's, you know, a little better than a coin flip that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, but I think it's a real possibility. You know, Ryan, I, I agree with you that I think I, I think Donald Trump probably is going to be the nominee. I was I was thinking about it uh, this way. Scott actually said this, Scott Tranner. Um, I th I, I'm going to quote the numbers a little bit wrong, but 61 million people voted for Donald Trump in 2016, 74 million voted for him in 2020. So you have 13 million people who looked at those four years and went, yeah, like I'm going to sign up for four more. And that's pretty shocking. Even though he lost, thinking about all those extra people that voted for him. So I really don't see a world where Donald Trump isn't isn't the candidate. But Caroline, what do you think? Prove us both wrong. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to prove you both wrong, but I, I think on the Biden front, yeah, it, it would look bad for Democrats if he did not run again in 2024. Not only would it not look good, I, in my mind, you know, if Joe Biden didn't run and it ended up being someone like Kamala Harris, you have popularity issues there as well. So not only does it look like, okay, we have this disorganized party that can't even come up with uh, uh, continuing support for Biden, you also have, you know, maybe a candidate who's even less popular than Biden. So I wouldn't be surprised if I, I do think he's going to run again in 2024. And as far as Donald Trump, if it's not Donald Trump, it's going to be a Trump adjacent person. It'll probably be whoever he endorses. So he still has that huge support among Republicans. And I think we'll see that again in 2024. We always do this magic wand question at the end of our podcasts. I feel like I probably already forced the magic wand with what's going to happen in 2024. But to give you another one, another magic wand question that's maybe a little bit more interesting in some ways. If you had your magic wand and you could change one thing about the American electoral system to be more like another country or just to be different than what it is, what would it be? So I was going to point a bit towards the UK. I mean, I think there's something to be said about exploring the possibility of expanding multi-member districts, as well as putting it in place, you know, ranked choice voting. So put simply, when you allow voters to choose multiple candidates uh, within a single race, um, you're really maximizing or increasing the chances that some of those lesser favored ca favored candidates could still get a seat at the table. Lesser favored candidates, meaning, you know, people in the minority party or even individuals in minority groups. And we've seen some of this research, at least at the state level, since we do have um, evidence of that. Because we have ranked choice voting in a few places. In the right, US. right. And I'm thinking I'm thinking multi-member districts like in Maine, for instance, and yeah, on average, we can see an increase in representation of women and, and individuals and minority groups when we do have that system in place. 
Um, so not only do we see that at the state level, but but I could see this as also having the potential of reducing um, or at least blunting the impact of gerrymandering. Because even if we have these gerrymandered districts, it's kind of hard to uh, increase the poll or have this polarizing effect of gerrymandering when we're allowed to have multiple candidates have a seat at the table for a particular district, right? So even if a candidate only wins 20% of the vote, um, if it's enough in a ranked choice multi-member district system to still have a seat at the table, uh, we're really helping improve proportional representation in that sense. So I think the combination of ranked choice voting, multi-member districts, not only can you make a pro-democracy argument about that, I think you can also make kind of like an anti-polarization uh, argument about that too. So we'll see. If we, if we do in, in put it in place, it's going to be really hard uh, in the federal level because of legislation, I believe, in the 1960s that really pushed uh, single member districts. But if we see more of it being experimented with in the state level and uh, local levels and more research on that, I think that would be a really good thing. Okay, so here's my magic wand. I'll give you a, um, this is a somewhat maybe um, deflecting the question a little bit, Liberty, because I, wa I, wanna, I wanna give you one that I think actually is a little implementable that you wouldn't need a magic wand for um, that you know Congress could do, and I'm often surprised is not more on the table right now, is simply expanding the House of Representatives. So, you know, another thing we forget is that there's no there's no number in the Constitution that says you have to have 435 members of the House. In fact, that was something that was set by legislation back at the beginning of the 20th century. And especially from the perspective of Democrats, that is something that should be very appealing to them. And they could do right now with their control of Congress. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. It just requires a simple change of the law. And in many ways would do things like expand the representation of um, people living in cities that are natural Democratic constituents and perhaps take away um, some of the power that, um, that gerrymandering, gerrymandering in particular has created um, that's given Democrats on average a slight disadvantage perhaps. So I, I'm often surprised that this isn't something that is discussed more. And I think even from a bipartisan perspective, increasing the House, the size of the House, um, has an appeal because these districts are big. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching 800,000 people in a district. And it's just, it's hard for me to imagine that that is the way um, the House of Representatives was intended to work in this country where we're approaching a million people in a district, right? And and it's just going to keep getting bigger every year. And some of these districts are unwieldy and not places that can be thought of as adequately represented. So I think that, you know, we can expand it. It's it's There's no reason there can't be 500 members in the House. I mean, you know, they do it in New Hampshire. They got like everybody in the state is in the, is in the legislature there. And, and so, you know, we should think about expanding it to Congress as well. And it wouldn't take a magic wand. It would just take a simple majority vote of both houses. And it's something I think seriously should be thought about. Now we're going to hear from our other two guests, both of which were authors on our special theme on elections. Scott Tranter, founder of Optimus Analytics and Decision Desk HQ, coming at us from a hard data perspective, and Professor Alan Lichtman, distinguished professor of history at American University, who's famous for his 13 keys to the American election, a more qualitative approach. If you could each pick three, so Professor Lickman, three of your keys, Scott, of your three top variables, what are the three top predictors of who's going to win? What is the, What are the data points? And, and actually, Professor Lickman, for you for a presidential election, so for 2024, Scott, for you for the midterms, what three variables have the biggest weight in your model? 
the the three biggest variables are generally polling based and so there's some sub based of polling fundraising and then fundamentals like incumbency and uh, uh fundraising and things like that in terms of the 2024 election i'm going to say mm-hmm. something again that's totally counterintuitive all my democratic friends are saying oh my god poor old joe biden who by the way surprised us with the greatest cash of domestic accomplishments for a Democrat since Lyndon Johnson. But leave that aside. You know, he's old, he's tired, we need new blood. Here's the thing. If Biden doesn't run, the Democrats lose the incumbency key. If Biden doesn't run, the Democrats lose the internal party contest key. That's two keys. It takes six keys to count the Democrats out. So if Biden doesn't run, they're down two keys right off the top. And it makes it much easier for the Democrats to lose. So leaving aside what you think of Biden, from pure hard politics, using my model for 2024, the critical factor is whether or not Biden runs again. And for sheer hard politics, the Democrats better hope he's healthy enough and does run. Scott, what's your take? On 2024? Um I don't know. I'm still thinking about 2022. Uh, incumbency is is certainly important. Um, it'll be interesting to see and where some of the not, fundraising. You know, is. if President Biden decides not to run, I can't remember the last time we've had a back to back double open primary, a a double open primary right after an incumbent had a first term. I'm sure it's happened. I can't think about that. What would it have been? Have been um, I don't know, Professor Lickman, you might know, but like we've the where the incumbent president decided not to run. We haven't had it. That's very yeah. you, you gotta go way, way back, back in history for that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. very, very yeah. rare. So that that's what I mean by that is is we've had a double open primary after we had a president. Rutherford B. Hayes, but you didn't have primaries back then, you know, decided yeah. James K. Paul. The rules were different back then. But... So I, I would say it's different. So I, I don't know. I mean, look, it's um 2024 is is not far off. If you look at the 2016 cycle, Ted Cruz announced, I believe, in December of 2014, right? And so, if that if that pattern holds, we will see our first Republican candidates announce here sometime late November, early December. Not saying the pattern will hold, but that's that's something to think about. Will it be Trump, Scott? Uh, depending on which rally you watch, it looks like Trump is either running again or telling people he's running again. Um, I think Trump wants to run, you know, he's got that super PAC, I guess it depends on what, how you define running, right? Like defining running actually, in my mind, means opening up that FEC account. Um, and so he has not done that yet, but in rallies, he has said he's going to run. Scott, for our listeners, what do you mean when you say open up that FEC account? So when you declare to run for president, you have to notify the federal election commission and the rules change on how you can collect and spend money until you, until you actually file to run for president, you can do various things with the C4, C3 and super PAC money he has raised. The minute he announces his presidency, the rules change. Um, and, and, and then how the media, um, and this is not law, but, but how people treat him are different as well. And then there's some non-federal laws, um, um, on how he gets treated things like how the Republican national committee treats him and things like that. So he hasn't really officially filed yet, but he's certainly verbalized. He wants to. No, so, so just so you know, I think, uh, I can sense that the, uh, you know, Alan, your uh, qualitative approach, I see you, you know, certainly 
uh, trying to predict the presidential elections uh, a little bit of more concrete, right? That for the House, for the Senator, you have so many seats, you know, and um, it, yeah, it seems like a kind of uh, recognizing pattern without uh, putting down kind of distribution of this approach, like make it a little bit more difficult. And and I think your rules are, um, I can understand you have deterministic rules, say, here's the key things. And if, if they go this way, you go that. So it's it's very much like what we call the regression tree. I know you you don't like the word regression, but there are these models essentially say if you do this, it's a decision that, right? tree. But decision trees, you know, of, of of that nature. But I guess that the question to essentially to both of you, I think, uh, uh, am I correct, Scott, that for for your more quantitative methods, as we all like, and uh, that uh, uh, do you see the fundamental difficulty when you need to predict a lot more seeds? Or maybe that's actually easier because now you have more data to learn from, you know, from from the past. Is a is a methodologically for what you do? Um, do do you have a fundamental difference between predicting presidential election versus the so sort of uh, you know in, you know mid year election? If I'm following mid-term. the question right, I I think you know there's different right. So when you're predicting a presidential you're, you're you can you can and some people predict all these things or some of them vote share electoral votes, specific states, those types of things, is whereas when you're predicting midterms, um, you might be predicting vote share on individual seats, you might be predicting overall number of seats, you might be just predicting control of a house, those types of things, and there's some, some minor things around mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, w- we take the opinion that we should be predicting vote share, we should be predicting electoral um, vote counts, um, as well as outcomes probabilistically, and so there's some nuance there, right? So if our model says someone has a 51% chance um, and someone asks us who we would think we win, the response would be, well, the model says 51% for this person. So if I have to make a binary choice, I'm going with the 51% one. Um, that is trying to convert a probabilistic outcome into a binary answer. Um, but I think you know those are some nuances there. That's what we generally look at. If you look at Nate Silver or The Economist, um, or any of the other uh, out there, I think like Sam Wang out of Princeton does it a little differently, or Rachel Bitcofer. Everyone has some of their nuances, but really it comes down to seats, vote share, um, or electoral electoral votes if it's the presidential. Both of you have been caring about, involved in, and focused on elections in, in the United States and other places, but the United States for a very long time. And so if you could wave your magic wand... And if there is one thing that you could change about the American election system to be more like another country or just change about the American election system, what would it be? Here's my, I'm not going to give you the obvious answer, get rid of the electoral college, but I'm going to base it on my system because unlike the polls, which tell you nothing about how elections really work, my system is based on a theory of how elections really work. That is, they are based on the performance of the White House party. And if you believe my system, we could have a wholly different kind of presidential campaign instead of the sound bites and the tricks and the, you know, the, the, the horrible negative ads. Instead, we could have campaigns actually focused on performance, the incumbent party telling you, you know, what it has accomplished, why it should get another four years and what its vision is for the next four years and the out party explaining to you why those accomplishments don't really add up to what they've said and why we have a better way over the next four years to accomplish something. If we 
did it that way, not only would it edify the American people, but you'd have real mandates. You'd have candidates really staking out what they're going to do over the next four years. So my model is not only a predictive model, it's a prescriptive model. Scott. I guess I'm going to be a little more nuts and bolts in my answer. I don't think election administration, you know, how we conduct our elections, how we count the votes, how we distribute the ballots, how we do those types of things has really been a focus of local county, state and municipal governments. Um, And I'm not a proponent of federalizing it like we see in other countries, but it certainly needs some federal attention in terms of dollars um, and continuity. Um, I think it worked pretty well over the last 20 years. The federal government, without imposing a federal election, needs to figure out how to help states, counties and municipalities fund the election equipment and workers and things like that, because those are those are important machines and and processes that I think have had some neglect and they need some attention. Um, I think they're they're well run locally, by and large. There are some bad actors and there are some people who shouldn't be election administrations. But by and large, it's worked pretty well and it's been working pretty well um, for over 100 years now. And it needs some more attention. Well, I think that that's a perfect note to end this discussion. And I think, uh, uh, you know, we all want to uh, not only have a fair election system, but we also want to have these predictions, you know, as as accurate as possible, um, so people can rely on them. I think that's both good for the for the data science in general, but also good for our society. Thank to both of you. I know you have quite different ways of doing things, but I'm quite sure each of you is committed to do the right thing, trying to predict as accurately as possible. Even you may take a very different approach here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.